WCNC Charlotte. This is Flashpoint, where power and politics collide and the tough questions get asked and answered. Thanks for joining us here on Flashpoint. I'm Ben Thompson. This week in North Carolina, Governor Roy Cooper vetoing a bill that would restrict abortion access after 12 weeks. But veto likely won't hold. In a moment, we'll speak to two doctors who fall on either side of this contentious debate. But first, how does this law stand up against other abortion restrictions across the country? Joining us now, Davidson College political science professor Susan Roberts. She studied abortion legislation for years. Susan, welcome back to Flashpoint. Thank you. Good to be here. So Republicans ha have painted uh, this North Carolina uh, bill as sort of a moderate approach to abortion. Do you feel like that that is a fair assessment when comparing North Carolina to other GOP-dominated states? Well, I think that it's maybe common sense to, to the Republicans, but at one point, I think you can look at it and even say illegitimate because it was no Democratic involvement whatsoever. I think that compared to uh, Florida, it uh, it's better, but that's very draconian in Florida. And I think that... Um, one thing I think that people need to look at is how the Republicans framed the bill um, as one that is uh, for women, children, and family. And that on its on its face looks like something that's common sense. And, and you would say that that is is that a strategy that has happened in other states across the country, this sort of framing it as a, as a family issue as opposed to say, say, a health care issue or a women's rights issue? Um, yes, it has, and I've, I'm looking into this in more detail, but at least in Louisiana and some other activist groups for abortion, uh, to eliminate abortion access, they framed it in the same way, highlighting women and family and um, not pictures of, say, a fetus or um, something that's uh, a little more uh, sensationalized. And so I think that other states are doing this, and it's a pretty smart strategy because it can really mask some things that are in a piece of legislation. And sometimes people uh, don't delve too much into a piece of legislation. Before I forget, I want to say that um, when Governor Cooper is urging constituents to contact the representative, this is not something that they can do with a, such a quick turnaround. And sometimes uh, it's summer, no one's paying attention, and I don't think that's a strategy that's going to, to pay off for Governor Cooper. Their description of this as being rushed through, not really deliberated, is that a fair uh, sort of assessment of how this was handled up in Raleigh? Uh, sure. 48 hours is, is really quick. If you look at uh, federal legislation, it dies after um, months and months or it just uh, never gets uh, argued on the floor. And I think this was very fast. And I think that, too, is something that uh, speeds up the process, makes it less likely to our member to change her or his mind because um, voters haven't had a chance to really um, contact the representative and read the legislation. I believe that in the paper, um, one of the newspapers, uh, Republican members really said, well, they hadn't had time to read all of the legislation. And, and sometimes that makes sense when you have omnibus legislation. This was 46 pages. That's long, but it's not um, that long. You can really look at some of the provisions and say, oh, I know what this is about. Yeah, that, that always just gets me going. When I hear, well, whether, no matter what the issue is, when you hear lawmakers voting on things they did not read, 
whether it's in DC or Raleigh, it's like, well, what are you doing? Why, why are we paying you? Uh, I think folks at home can understandably get so frustrated about this. What do you see as the political ramifications? Assuming everything goes through, um, what do you see as the impacts this having on Republicans and the impacts it having on Democrats going into 2024? Well, I think uh, what happens in 2024 is going to depend a lot on the topic, uh, the top of the ticket. And um, here's why things are not stable. In Kansas, you had um, last fall before the election an overwhelming referendum to support uh, abortion access. And then in April 2023, the legislature came back and uh, passed several pieces of legislation that blocked access to abortion. So what was a quick victory turned into a quick defeat. And that was a victory that really looked at citizen initiative, public opinion. And here we have uh, public opinion didn't change that much. But one of the things members think about is reelection. This is a very safe time for members to cast a vote that might have an impact on their reelection. And the Republicans are going to have to find a way to deal with access to abortion. Um, there was kind of a hangover when um, abortion drove people to the polls on the pro-choice side. And uh, right now is a very convenient time to um, pass this legislation if you only look at re-election. All right, Susan Roberts, Professor Epa Davidson. Susan, thanks for coming on Flashpoint as always. Thank you. Still to come, a Duke University doctor says this bill is all based on politics and not good medicine. Ahead, why she's pushing lawmakers in Raleigh to rethink their plan. Welcome back to Flashpoint. Republicans in Raleigh poised to allow new abortion restrictions in North Carolina. And doctors have largely been at the forefront of this debate over abortion, working closely with patients, ultimately making just what is a often a, a gut-wrenching decision about their health. Joining us now is Dr. Beverly Gray. She's an associate professor of obstetrics and gynecology at Duke University. Doctor, thanks for coming on. We appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So North Carolina lawmakers looking to restrict abortion at 12 weeks. You're the expert here. For context, at that point, where are most women at their pregnancy? And follow up, what stage is the fetus at at that point as well? So that's an excellent question. And I think um, I'm happy to explain a little bit about embryology. So um, when someone finds out they're pregnant, um, the earliest people really find out is when they miss their first menstrual cycle. And the first two weeks of pregnancy, you're not actually pregnant. So um, you have ovulation occurs around two weeks, um, implantation happens a few days after that. And so the pregnancy really starts growing in like the third, fourth week of pregnancy. So it, at four weeks, four to five weeks, the pregnancy test is positive. At six weeks, there's um, a pregnancy sac, or as we call it, a gestational sac that starts growing. Um, and at that stage, um, the pregnancy is about the size of a dime. So it's not very much pregnancy tissue and it's very, very early. There's an, uh, maybe an embryo that you could see at that stage on ultrasound. Often you'll see what's um, called a heartbeat or cardiac activity around six to seven weeks, um, but the heart really doesn't start developing until further on, a few weeks further along. Um, that's really just electrical activity that you can see on ultrasound, which can be replicated in a Petri dish. 
And so around from six weeks to 12 weeks, you have um, organs starting to develop. Um, and currently we have a 20 week ban in North Carolina and pregnancies cannot survive outside the womb at 20 weeks. And I think one thing I'd really like to highlight here is that there's a lot of misinformation out there about third trimester um, procedures. And it, I can tell you with assurance, in North Carolina, in the last year, there have not been any abortions in the third trimester. So the third trimester starts at 28 weeks. We have a 20-week ban. Um, the, as you mentioned, the, the current bill restricts abortion at 20 weeks. What difference do those eight weeks make between current 20 weeks and the 12 weeks they're proposing there in Raleigh? So there are a lot of things that can happen during that time. So the third trimester starts around 13 weeks. Um, you know, I've talked a lot about how pregnancy is a marathon. It is really hard on your body. And for some patients who have underlying medical illnesses like high blood pressure, diabetes, sometimes as they get into that second trimester, that marathon becomes really hard on their bodies. Um, there are things that can happen um, that we can detect at that period of time. So um, genetic abnormalities, severe birth defects, um, other things that can be detected at the either the 12 week period of time or the 18, 20 week period of time when, when a person would have an ultrasound. And so for folks who have had a pregnancy before, you know that that ultrasound at that 18 to 20 week time is, is usually a happy time and a time where you find out the sex of the baby, you get some pictures, for some patients, they walk out of our office absolutely devastated with, with news that there's something wrong with their pregnancy. And so what I'm worried about with this bill is that, you know, it's very unclear which patients who receive those diagnoses, who have medical complications between that 12th and 20 week, will be able to receive care. For teenagers, they may have irregular menstrual cycles. They fall into that window. They may be afraid to tell their parents that they're pregnant. For patients living in poverty, they may be saving up money to pay for care because in, in North Carolina, like many states, um, about half of people are covered by Medicaid for their pregnancy care. And Medicaid does not cover um, abortion care. So patients have to save up money out of pocket to pay for that. And you know, if you're working an hourly wage, if you are one of the 60% of patients who already have kids who are seeking abortion care, it can be challenging. And so this, this bill has so many barriers for our patients. So multiple in-person visits that are not medically necessary. Um, we only have nine counties in North Carolina where there are clinics. So it's already really challenging for patients to get to a clinic, especially if you live in a rural part of our state. Um, and so with waiting periods to get in, with multiple in-person visits, it, the barriers just got impossible for a lot of people. How medically sound do you feel like this bill is? And how much of it do you think is politics? This bill is not medically sound. I think there are, there's a lot of uh, misinformation. There's a lot of, um, you know, I think myself and my colleagues, we we tried to to counsel our legislators about what the realities are in medicine and kind of the realities that we face. We gave examples of patients that we care for every day. Um, and I can think of so many examples of patients that I've cared for in these past few months who had medical complications that maybe didn't meet the very strict definition for care. And I worry about these patients um, very deeply. 
I was going to say, uh, what do you see as the repercussions this goes through? What do you think this means for, for, for women and, and, and families across North Carolina? So unfortunately, we know that in states with strict abortion bans, which I would I would put this under a strict abortion ban, that maternal mortality is higher um, in those states. And I worry about our already marginalized patients who are, are struggling to make ends meet, who are living in poverty, who might be forced to continue a pregnancy that could put their lives at risk. And I worry that our maternal mortality numbers are going to rise. We're already living in a maternal mortality crisis. And I think this is going to make it worse. And not enough people are talking about that, including folks in Raleigh and in DC mm -hmm. as well. All right, Doctor, thanks for coming on and talking to us. We appreciate your expertise. Absolutely, thanks for having me. All right, take care. Coming up next, we hear the other side of this debate. An anti-abortion doctor describes why this bill is the right move. Welcome back to Flashpoint. This week in Governor Cooper vetoing new restrictions on abortions. And some doctors, unlike what you just heard before the break, some doctors say this is the right move to protect both the fetus and the mother. Joining us now is Dr. Susan Bain, medical director of the Choices Women's Center in Wilson, North Carolina. She is also uh, anti-abortion. Uh, doctor, thanks for coming on. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Um, listen, a whole host of medical groups have come out against these restrictions. I'm sure you're aware of that. Nearly 1,500 providers signing a petition against further restrictions. These are some of your colleagues in the medical profession. Why do you think that they're wrong? <laughs> you, you know, I, this is such a hard and difficult topic, and it is not settled science. When you think about the fact that OBGYN physicians, which I am, take care of both a maternal and a fetal patient, and that we have an ethical obligation to provide great care for both of those patients, there is this controversy that you're actually protecting the woman by ending the life of her, of her very own child. And that's where the disagreement happens. You know, those of us who practice Hippocratic medicine, we have to avoid intentionally causing harm. And I see both of my patients and I want exceptional healthcare for both of them. I think some of my colleagues want exceptional health care for one patient. And I think that's where the difference lies. Um, as a field, it's quite interesting. 76 to 93% of practicing obstetricians and gynecologists don't perform induced abortions. And so that small segment that does um, has reasons why they believe they should continue to do so. But many of us disagree. You, you mentioned two patients. Um, is there a, a line which you draw, the line where you don't see it as two patients at a certain point in the pregnancy, before that you don't see? For, for you, in, in your mind, what is the, the cutoff cut based on, on not only your ethics, but also your, your training as a, as a doctor? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So if you look at the embryology textbooks, which are a class all doctors take in medical school, um, chapter one, page one says human development, um, it begins at conception. The first eight weeks of life, we're called an embryo, then we're called a fetus, 
At birth, we're a neonate, an infant, toddler, child, teenager, adult, older adult. So this is a continuum of human development. So there's no time that I don't see two patients. Um, so I think that's the simple answer. There's no time. So there are always two that I have to keep in mind when I'm taking care of them. Um, we spoke to another doctor who feels differently than you, and she said that this bill just is not medically sound, that it creates unnecessary hurdles for moms, especially at-risk moms who, who might not have the best insurance or flexible job required to, to go to some of these appointments spelled out in the law. She said <laughs> unnecessary hurdles for, for some of the doctors. Do you think the provisions spelled out in this bill are based strictly in medicine? Yeah, I absolutely do. I think they are designed for the health and safety of the patients. Um, they're designed to protect women. We want women to be empowered with information. So going to see her physician, her healthcare practitioner, when she's getting ready to make a decision of massive consequence, it's not an everyday decision to either choose to give birth um, and parent, to give birth and consider adoption, or give permission to a healthcare pr practitioner to end the very own life of their child. So that is something that women need to be well informed when they make that decision. You know, I work as the medical director at pregnancy centers. Everybody I see has unintended pregnancies and they are often alone, afraid, feeling coerced and like they have all these challenges and circumstances in front of them, these barriers. The most common in the literature is socioeconomic barriers, which you mentioned. And so my job is not to make their decision, but my job is to provide an informed consent that empowers them with that information so that they can make a really well-informed decision. So whether that is, you know, they choose to have an abortion, they know that there's no judgment here and they are welcome to come back if they want to talk about things afterwards. But if they are going to choose to give birth, whether that's parenting or through adoption, that we're going to try to connect them with resources. And this bill has so many appropriations that address the challenges I see every day in my practice. You let, know, quality, let me affordable just, daycare, just, things like that. Let me interrupt you just real quick because we're going to run out of time. But don't you think, and maybe I'm just being naive, that what you just explained is what doctors do. It's what make doctors such important people. It's what makes them such highly trained professionals. It's what they do, take care of their patients. Why do you need a, a state law telling them how to do that? Well, first of all, I think we need a state law to, to protect both patients. You know, if, if we truly believe and the science supports that, that that fetal patient, that embryo is a full living human organism. So why are we, is there a place in medicine, in the purpose of medicine for the direct and intentional killing of another human being? Okay, some believe there is, many don't. As a matter of fact, in North Carolina, most citizens actually polled believe there should be limits. And that's, I think, where the compromise of 12 weeks came from. So I think from the fetal patient, yeah. You know, I, I would hope that all of my colleagues would give women a thorough informed consent. 
but I have women that come back after having abortions and unfortunately they aren't given those choices. I've had colleagues, you know, who have said as soon as they got a diagnosis of a life-limiting disability, their child, they were immediately suggested to terminate and they made this rash, quick decision that they now regret. And so I think there isn't that partnership between a healthcare professional and the patient is so powerful. That patient has a lived experience and and I don't have that, but I have expertise. So when we partner together, um, that's what I think best medicine is. And I think the provisions to have those appointments um, only help women. Come interact with us on social media, folks, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. If there's something you want us to talk about on Flashpoint, let us know. And as always, remember to listen and subscribe to our podcast. You can find it wherever you get yours. And we'll see you back here next weekend.